I'm your host, Kyle Winkler. This is the left hand of Le Guin. We're going to be discussing the tombs of Atuan today with uh, Paul Jessup. Paul is a writer. He's published in Clark's World, Apex, Fantasy, Inner Zone, Pseudopod, Nightmare, and plenty of other places. He's also a, you've designed video games, make video games. But uh, I'm going to let you tell listeners who you are and what it is you do in more in more detail. Oh, sure thing. Um, yeah, I'm Paul Jessup. Yeah, I've been doing the writing thing for about like way too long <laughs> professionally way way too long but the video game thing for probably just about as long um but not as professionally that was more just for fun and just recently i started doing that professionally but um my recent I, i've had a few books out too in the small press uh, my most recent book is the silence that binds and that's out by vernacular books which actually was heavily spooned by inspired inspired by uh tombs of atuan um i could tell to be perfectly yeah. honest with you. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite books. So, I mean, I, I it was kind of funny that, like, you asked me to do this. I'm like, oh, yes, I think I do like that book. <laughs> well, that's exactly why I asked you here, actually, is because and people might be wondering, like, okay, why is it that I invite certain people onto the podcast? Or why do I, okay, here's the deal. I, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know a lot of people. Uh, everybody who is going to be a part of the show is probably someone that I'm going to reach out to on Twitter or who I saw someone say at one point in time that, like, Gwen was a part of their life or their their reading repertoire or is in their TBR or something like that. And I have to say more than once, like I'd say at least five times, I've seen Paul on Twitter mention that Tombs is is like one of his favorite books. And so that was lodged in the back of my head. And when it came time for me to put the show together, I thought, okay, who wants to talk about this? And I just, it's just to get people and episodes and something in line i thought okay paul and i have had a good back and forth on twitter since i started or at least in the last few years anyway and let me reach out to him and see and you were like yes and i thought perfect this is gonna work out so that is that's the rationale behind that so you may have thought that i was reading your mind but you've put out the feelers before not to me but like you let people know that this was a good book or a book that you really like quite a bit so i stashed yeah. that little factoid in the back of my brain and and exploited um, it to get you onto the show and it worked yeah, <laughs> yeah that's um i'm perfectly happy with that then because <laughs> always happy to talk about <laughs> tombs of adawan yeah yeah so why don't we start with this then so the question i've been asking all the guests who come on the show is basically can you give me uh like a a rundown of like when did you first encounter ursula k Le Guin's books uh, writ large and then uh, when did you first read Tombs of Atuan? Okay, yeah. Um, so I knew actually knew about Le Guin since I was I was younger, uh, like like in elementary school. But I didn't actually read any of her books then. A friend of mine, uh, Gabe, he actually read all of her books and was raving about them all the time and said they were better than Lord of the Rings. And uh, I just never got around to reading it until I was like in my twenties. I was like, well, you know, I should probably see what this is all about. And so I read Wizard of Earthsea. I'm like, oh, this is really good. And then I read Tombs of Atuan. I'm like, this is amazing. And then I read, oh, what was the third book? The Furthest Shore. And I mm -hmm. thought, oh, this is this is okay. I wanted more like Atuan. So when I when I read um, Tehenu, I was just like, okay, this is great. And then a little after that is when uh, the four, the other one came out too. So I was like, it was it was a very good time for me to get into Le Guin because she started putting out the other uh, the other wind and that collection of uh, Earth Tales, Tales of Earth. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so you were in your twenties when you first read Tombs of Atuan, then. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So I actually came later than most people. Um, wow, couldn't be later than me because I didn't really read Le Guin until I was probably 30, 31. So, and I'm almost forty now. So I've only really been reading Le Guin for about a decade. But you know, I'm familiar with her, right? This is the same story I hear from a lot of people. Is like people heard the name, they knew yeah. about it, whether they were an SF reader or a fantasy reader. And maybe you even read, somebody read, uh, you know, the ones who walk away from Omalas in school or something. You know, I think maybe I even read that uh, one time in high school or something. So, you know, it's, it's hard to avoid uh, Le Guin in, in any sort of a setting. If you're a reader, right, you, you, you see the name and you hear it. Um, but um, so that's interesting. Okay, so, so let's, let's zoom in on this then. So the Tombs of Atuan. And I, I'm going to lay, I'm going to lay this out for you. And I want, this is not your, it's not your burden to try to convince me of anything, but um, 
out of all of the of the Earthsea material books, the tombs of Atuan and the farthest shore are the ones that I had least connected with when I was reading. Hmm. And I'm on rereading tombs, I am I'm much more on board. But I want to hear what it is about this book that so has won you over. I'm just very because I think it's I don't I've never heard anybody say that this is the one that really does it for them. And and you clearly are such a advocate for it. So I want to hear like what's what's your if you were to pitch somebody on it, like what is your what about the book? I'll say this real quick is because this there's just there's so little of what makes the rest of Earth sees material stand out. There's so little magic. It really focuses on very pedestrian, not pedestrian, but like human interaction. And not that her other Earthsea work doesn't, but I mean, would you agree with that? That this book doesn't on the surface seem quote unquote fantastical? I mean, there are moments where fantasy and magic exists, but it's much more character-based. It's much more emotional. It's much more, um, I don't know. I'll just let you talk. What do you think? <laughs> no, actually, that's, that's actually what really appealed to me on it. It was, it was that it was more of an emotional story. Um, the fantastic stuff actually felt more like horror than um, the usual fantasy, which is also something that really drew me to it because you not only have that claustrophobia of the tombs itself, uh, but the actual, the, the, the things that are worshipped, the unnamed one, you know, um, they have a very Lovecraftian kind of feel to them to me. Um, you know, there's, there's just this creepy, unsettling nature to them. And the fact that Ged is actually scared of them after the first book <laughs> that says something, you know, that's, that's to me, that, that, that was actually really part of what drew me to it. Um, that and there's an anthropological nature to the magic in that book. That isn't seen well. I mean, it, it is seen a little in in the Wizard of Earthsea because the whole you know names being the power that draw things. There's a very that's based on. Um, I don't know if you know about like Le Guin's parents. Have you read about them at all? Well, he was a he was an anthropologist, right? And, right, right, and about the Kroger, yeah. um, issue of two worlds. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell very but quickly? Can you summarize what this was? This this work that he did. Oh, yeah, of course. So, like, um, her father was an anthropologist, and one of the people that he, like, discovered and followed and actually wrote, well, he didn't write a book about, but he, like, studied him and brought him in to live with him at the, the university he worked with and everything. Um, and his, his wife, uh, Le Guin's mom, actually wrote the book, Issue of Two Worlds, about him. But he was, like, the last of his tribe, and he, like, still practiced all the old ways and things like that, and so people could talk to him and, and find out exactly, like, what, like, what things were lost with his with his Native American tribe and things like that. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly which tribe he was a part of. Um, and mm -hmm. I think later on they found out that he wasn't the last of it, actually. Mm -hmm. And they petitioned to get his bones back and things like that because they were at the university. If I remember right, this is all uh, foggy-headed. But one of the things that he talked about was names having power, um, mm -hmm. which Le Guin obviously like, latched onto. And I think with um, Atuan, which makes real interesting to me, is that uh, the anthropology of this one um, doesn't seem it's based on Ishii, uh, but the ending when um, Arha um, is leaving and she's going out into the world and she's confused and she doesn't know if she's the, the world around, she doesn't understand it, the world outside, the world he's taking her to, and she's worried that she's not going to be able to fit in and it's going to be just as bad as the tombs that she left. Mm -hmm. I wonder if like Le Guin was influenced by Ishii, who was like, you know, he was like in the book, like Ishii of Two Worlds, he was of two worlds. He was trying to survive in our world when he was of like a different world altogether. And like the stuff that he did, like the way he fished and the rituals he did for himself was so foreign to us, you know, and we were probably so foreign to him. And I think, I just wonder if she drew on that for like the ending, especially, which I, I thought was a very powerful ending. Right. I, I would well, I would agree with you. I think that the all the all of the anthropological work that her father did and the the book that her mother wrote and her work with those with uh, indigenous peoples, uh, both on the on the west coast, you know, which always coming home refers back to, and which this I mean, I think all of her work in some way is always referring to to that type of stuff, the anthropological uh, upbringing and the the things that were around her all the time. It makes a lot of sense. And 
yeah, rereading the ending of this book where she, well, she goes so far as to pull a dagger on Ged. She wants to like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. She, I don't, she seems like uh, she would rather be alone than have, be forced to go somewhere um, totally new and foreign. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. That's interesting. So that's the, part, that's the part I was thinking when I said it was a powerful ending is when she draws the dagger and actually thinks of killing him, right. who saved him. You know, mm-hmm. I was just like, that's that's not something you would think. Like, like that's such an interesting turn and like so fitting with her character. And I don't think other writers would have done that. You know what I mean? They would have just had her be saved. Yay, happiness. She's going to lead a good knife now that she's not in the tombs. But it's that's not the case at all. You know, that's that's part of her her character development there, I think is just really interesting. Yeah. One of the things we talked about on the first few episodes about a wizard of Earthsea was how compressed everything is. And I love that she doesn't Le Guin, that is, doesn't spend tons of time on things that a normal, not a normal writer, but I think a lot of writers would like want to unspool or like they go at towards the end. Um, Ged disguises them or disguises himself as a regular Kargish person. So they can go into this village and um, he's like, I'm going to look for some food. And then Le Guin decides to just not show that part. And the next line is they left the village with their bellies full, basically. And it's like, that's great. I love that. We don't need to know that. We just needed to have that information to move on to the next thing. And the reason why I say that is because I think in a, in a, this is a very unusual book in the sense that it's not, um, at least I don't think of it as an adventure book. I mean, there are moments that are tense. There are moments that are dark. There are moments that have violence in them. But it is a very, um, it's a very understated book compared to the first one, right. uh, which I think is a bold move because uh, you write a book like A Wizard of Earthsea, which has like a dragon in it and there's seafaring and there's all kinds of like really creative, fun magic. And in this one, uh, the main character from the first book doesn't even show up until halfway through. Right. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I want to know what you think about that, because I th- again, I think that's a pretty I think that's a bold move. It is. It is a very bold move. And it's interesting, too, because it's if I remember right, it starts off uh, with the white tree of Gaunt at the beginning. Like it's what it was. It's the, the tree at the center of the, um, the academy where the, the wizards are learning their spells and stuff like that. So you think, oh, it's going to start. It's going to be the same kind of thing. And then it just kind of goes in a completely different way. And it, it, it goes into, you know, um, the Eden one and everything else like that. I don't know. I was just so excited about reading. The first time I read it, and I was reading about the ritual that starts off when she's the Eden one, mm-hmm. and it just felt like a real world ritual. You know, it just felt like it didn't feel like a fantasy story ritual. It felt like there was something you could tell that she'd studied anthropological, like through her parent, even if it was just through her parents or through herself, like she understood like real ritual and everything else like that. Right. The fir- I think the first time I read this, I wasn't um, something about the book the way that Le Guin describes all the scenes in this book, because there's so much darkness, I wasn't able to differentiate a lot of what things looked like in my first reading years ago. But now that I knew that going into it, because I was like, I don't remember anything visually in my head thinking about this book other than um, them leaving. And then something about, um, the character of Castle, who's just sort of this really aggressive woman who's yeah. uh, overlooking Arha or Tenor, however you want to call her. And the yeah. the thing that was so strange about it was I couldn't visualize anything. So I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, it's because everything is in darkness. Everything is underground. There are moments of visual, uh, you know, uh, description, but everything is very. It's black or white or gray. Even the bread. Like the buckwheat bread is like described as a gray loaf. You know, everything is meant to be. But then I think about it, and we were talking about this online last night. It's, it's obviously meant, I think, to be described that way. Because, well, why, why don't we do, I'll ask you to just give like, why don't you give like a brief summary of what the book is in whole? Because if people maybe haven't read it in forever, or they want to be interested in it. And again, there's, we don't, spoilers galore here. So if you're getting into this, <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about everything. So. But go ahead and how would you sum this up for somebody? Oh, wow. That's that's a tough choice. It is. Uh, yeah, it's it tough, is tough. Yeah, because like it's well, the one thing is, too, is like it's a surprisingly very short book. 
but it feels yeah. dense. I mean, yes. that's, that's one way of putting it. Like you don't, it doesn't feel short when you're reading it, but I think Wizard of Earthsea was like that too, but in a yeah. different way, because that one felt epic. So it was like, it wasn't really dense so much as vast. Well, this right. one is packed in. It's very mm -hmm. packed in tight. So uh, the, the story of this one is basically there's um, a little girl who ends up becoming a sacrifice, but in the world, in this world that she's at, when she's sacrificed to these elder God kind of creatures, uh, that means that she lives in these tombs beneath the earth, uh, that it's like a basic large maze or dungeon, and she protects them. And she does these, does these rituals every day to appease these dark ancient ones. And then um, basically uh, the character, the main character from the first story comes in, uh, uh, Ged, who's like the wizard of, you know, he's basically the wizard of Earth at this point. <laughs> you know, he's just a badass. And he's trying to find um, this one ring that's supposed to like when it's when it, a broken ring that's when it's healed again will bring peace to the land. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem, like the problem here is that he didn't expect there to be like these ancient creatures in there. Like the, I think he calls them demons or something like that. They're like, they're not gods at all. They're, they're, they're demonic forces that are feeding on the people, the tombs. Um, and they're leaving her. That's actually something interesting too, that they're leaving uh, uh, our hot, like tenor alone uh, while she does this. And he has to have her help him find the ring and then escape. I mean, that's like the main gist of the story is it's not actually an adventure. It's more like a, a personal, like in her helping him, he's helping her at the same time too. Like he's got to gain her trust. And in doing so, he kind of has to like help her realize that what's going on here is wrong and that she can lead a better life than this. And I think that's just really interesting because it's, it's all a personal journey. Like the whole story here is a personal journey. So when they actually leave, like it, it's it's more about her coming to realization of who she is and coming into her own power, and him helping her do that. Whereas I'd heard described that was a diversity is like a Bildungsroman for Ged. The yeah. tombs of Atuan is the Bildungsroman of Tenor slash Arha, because yeah. Tenor is still she is still a main character in the succeeding books, and in fact is I would say probably the main character of Tahano. Uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, so is becomes another really important character in the entire mythos of Earthsea. Um, you know, what's interesting, and I wanted to ask you this question was, um, so there are these these sort of the nameless ones, these like elder gods that exist, and we ne but I, we don't really see them, right? They are, I think, put in, they're symbolized in ritual by uh, these, um, vassals, followers, priestesses, eunuchs that are all a part of this whole thing that are meant to kind of kept uh, to keep this whole system going. Yeah. And one of the things that I was getting from this, which was very strange, was the difference between the importance of ritual versus uh, the sim symbolism of ritual versus the literalism of the belief. So, you know, for example, just in all belief systems, there are people who potentially are part of the belief system because of what the rituals do for their emotional and mental and spiritual consistency, as mm -hmm. opposed to people who believe in the physical actuality of whatever religious system they're a part of, right? So for example, there are people who just take Christianity mm -hmm. as an example. There are people who go to church because every Sunday they get to see people. It's, it's communion for them to like be a part of a group of people. It gives them social solidarity and uh, gives them meaning etc and then there are people who go to church because they believe that we just had easter recently that that jesus christ is the risen god there are people who believe that there are people who, who want both and there are people who choose one over the other right so but my i guess my point here is something like i got the feeling reading this book that there are people who don't believe that the nameless ones are even real like i get that feeling from castle sometimes even that um, at first, I don't believe that Ged does. And then towards the end there, as they're, uh, he gets into the, this labyrinth to find the ring of Aerith Ackby, which is uh, what you were describing. I, I couldn't pronounce yeah. that name. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, Aerith Ackby. And he's stuck in this labyrinth. And so she, uh, she is the only one who knows how to sort of navigate this by feel because it's totally dark. It's, no one's allowed to have light in there. And uh, 
he mentions he's like there is a there's something that's keeping me here his magic does not work in in the tombs of atuan like it would anywhere else on Earthsea. so there is something there which i think is interesting he he obviously recognizes it but there's also a sense that a lot of the ritual and or the religious overtones all the things that these people do there is also potentially not real i don't know what did you think about that how do you have it i actually thought the same thing and it's it's interesting because you contrast it with the magic in the other books and there's a different yeah. definitely a different feel to it because it's like the rituals that performing that they're performing down there isn't magic but it's doing something i think it actually is keeping the creatures in check but not all of them work you know what i mean yeah. so like i think that this kind of it's it's real interesting because like when layered it so it feels realistic and that um some of the rituals work some don't work and it's something that grew over time and that they just kept doing it because they thought all of them worked you know sort of like how real religions do that you know exactly it actually has a very like i got it because i I was raised catholic Um, me too yeah yeah so like there's a very catholic feeling (laughs) to a lot of the rituals in this book (laughs) yeah i I thought you know and i was like huh you know like the first time i read i'm like huh this is a little too personal sometimes (laughs) and then but it, it, it's just so interesting, too, because like a lot of times you, you're wondering, like, are these things real? Are they not? And then at the end, it's like, oh, they are. And that I also had a very like, like weird horror kind of feel from that, um, because a lot of weird horror, like that's the whole thing is where there's the, the amb- ambiguity. You know what I mean? Right. Is this yeah. happening? Is this not happening? Right. Uh, how, how, how wide is this happening if it is happening? Uh, right. I put this question out to uh twitter folk i said if you're a fan of the tombs of atuan please let us know how you see the story of tenor arha is it the obverse coming of age story of geds as Le Guin had even suggested at some point or is it something else and um someone speaking of the religious aspect someone said speaking as someone with experience it's hard to ignore the quote-unquote religious sheltering angle um which i thought was i thought was fascinating for a number of reasons that you are as a child given over to something much larger than you that you can't question to the point where you even forget who you are where you're from there's a part at the end where ged asks tenor where she was born and she says i think i was born in the village of entat like she doesn't really remember mm-hmm. where so it's it's pretty um it's that's the sad part as you go through the whole thing so i I, that's something I was thinking about was the religious sheltering part. But then also uh, with regard to the buildings Roman aspect, there's the, and I wonder how this ties in with the weird horror aspect <laughs> is, well, how childhood is like that, right? Yeah. The growing up process is in a, is horrific in a lot of ways. And people around you are I always I teach college and I have these students who come in who are from high school and they're getting college credit. And I'm like, high school is weird, right? Because on one hand, you're being told to be an adult. And then when you try to be an adult, they tell you that you're not ready. Right. So you're you're getting mixed signals all the time. And I think that's what's happening to tenor in the book is they want her to be um the the eaten one. They want her to be this 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 priestess, this high priestess, but at the same time. She's never given really the full reins of power. And when she tries to take them, she's always sort of, you know, you know, chided like, well, you didn't really get that right, you know. Um, and so she's trying to both grow up in this weird ritual, horrific <laughs> system. Um, and someone was saying that it, uh, or I had, I was reading that her experience is one of a woman coming to coming into her own in society. Now, whether you read that as Le Guin criticizing and critiquing that process, which I think she probably is, I don't know. That could be up for debate. I don't know if you had any thoughts yeah, on that. Actually, um, yeah, because that's, that's one thing I read. and Because uh, I've got the illustrated Earthsea and Le Guin like, right. had the introduction in each chapter. And um, she actually said of this book that, you know, um, Wizard of Earthsea about was about like a boy coming to like it was like you know buildings Rome but it, 
she used the phrase coming into po- coming into their power too. Mm-hmm. Like like as in growing up was coming into your power and how women came into their power. And I think that is it. I think she's critiquing it. And I think it's interesting because like um, when she leaves the tombs, like um, Tenar is then worried, like, you know, that it's going to be more of the same outside of it. Like, mm-hmm. like being an adult, she's still going to be at the whims of more powerful men and things like that. So I think it's like definitely like a criticism on like just the patriarchy itself too. I mean, even though, even though when she was in the tombs, like the woman that was in charge, there's a woman that was in charge of her and the men were eunuchs and stuff. It's still, I think. A patriarchy. Yeah. To some degree, right? Right. But it's still not any different because like still like the woman that was in charge of her was probably still under the, the guise of their king and everything else like that. So it was just going from one to the other. Right. And the structure of power was always that there was there's a hierarchy. There was this god king, and then there were the people that they answered to all the way down to yeah. uh Kossel or Thar or whoever, and then finally down to to Arha. So yeah, there's always some structure. Whereas um at the end, it's funny you say that we keep coming back to the end. There was a great paragraph. It was one of these very Liguinian paragraphs that I thought were was very beautiful. Um it's in the last chapter. They're they're leaving. Ged turns to her and says, now, he said, now we're away. Now we're clear. We're clean gone, Tenor. Do you feel it? And she, she does. She feels this and she, she begins to weep. It says she wept in pain because she was free. And here's the paragraph. What she had begun to learn was the weight of liberty. Freedom is a heavy load, a great and strange burden for the spirit to undertake. It is not easy. It is not a gift given, but a choice made. And the choice may be a hard one. The road goes upward towards the light, but the laden traveler may never reach the end of it. And then it says, Ged let her cry and said no word of comfort, which to me is like one of the most adult things that a child or someone who is young or even a 20-year-old or even a 30-year-old who is reading this book for the first time needs to hear, to yeah. be honest with you. <laughs> no, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. Like, Wow, just the passages in that book are so beautiful. I mean, just when you read that, I'm like, oh, I remember that so well. I think I've reread that part. So my, just Le Guin is so poetic. And I remember, I think you said a tweet, like you sent out a tweet like a, a little bit ago about somebody saying that her her writing was um, not sparse, but uh, something similar to that. Um, oh, austere. Austere, that's right. I'm actually like, going to say this right now real quick. Before, I don't what? mean to interrupt you. That's no, fine. But... It was it was Jonathan Strahan, who I have all the greatest respect for. It was on the Cood Street podcast. He was talking to Gary K. Wolf uh, because Jonathan had just read Was a Diversity for the first time, like a couple months ago. I don't think it was late <laughs> coming to it. <laughs> well, and his whole that was his point, though, was something like coming to it. I think Jonathan's in his I don't want to insult Jonathan. I think he's in his 50s, probably that. Uh, Reading it as someone who is older, as opposed to reading it when, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, the appropriate time, although I think Le Guin would have issues with yeah. that, is, you know, that there's things oh, yeah. you might miss out on. But I don't, again, and this is getting, don't forget what you're going to say. I, I think that the fantasy genre and the way that Le Guin wrote it is seen by many people, even people in the field of um, FNSF as for children or for younger people but i don't find that to be true at all obviously because i mean adults are still reading it all the time and getting lots of stuff out of it um and and like you said there's a level of poetry in it that i think um while is not over the heads of younger readers is sort of there for people who are older who can appreciate it who've read a number of things um on top of that i don't find her style austere in any sort of way um and i guess i don't i understand why people use adjectives to describe writing all the time but i guess i don't see the where the descriptor austere matches parts of especially a wizard of earthsea um i don't see that at all but you were talking about that yeah well yeah i actually i was just listening to uh the podcast right before this one where you guys were talking about the language of earthsea yeah that was just that was really good um, and one thing I was thinking though is like when when he said austere, um, I was like, you know, I think people get the idea of like poetic language and a work, they think it has to be 
like overridden and and frilly and and purple and that doesn't make any sense to me because poetry is the opposite of that you know what i mean because you don't read poems and you like they're they're actually the smaller they're 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 very fine-tuned with Mm -hmm. less words meaning more you know Mm -hmm. and a really good poem like can say so much in three words that would be like written in a paragraph. And I think that's what Le Guin does here. Like each word is so perfectly placed. Like if you took one out, it just, the, it would just would not work as well. And it's, I really think it's supposed to be meant to be read aloud, like all of her work. Like when you read it aloud, it's, it just has a rhythm to it. That is just beautiful. I was, I was, where was I listening to this? I think it was, I think it might have been in the Cood Street podcast, the most recent one, where Jonathan and Gary were talking about how uh, Le Guin had done a lot of research and was very interested in how storytellers, oral storytellers operate, how they tell stories, and that she too wanted to try to explore that, not only in her fiction, but, but replicate that somehow in the style of the writing. And I guess you could see that in a book like um, The Telling. Uh, which is all yeah. about that the, you know, the sort of reminds me of the issue story the, this information that's had and needs to be passed and how that works and the observation of it and things like that but the, talking about the, the the poetry part so they've just escaped and here it is it's in the the penultimate chapter of the book and they've escaped to this sort of uh high hill overlooking this valley that they've just escaped. And this massive earthquake has swallowed this uh, tomb complex that she spent all of her life in so far. So basically her world is like, it is literally destroyed. Uh, And they're sitting by a fire and Ged is asleep and she's observing all this. She looked to her left and saw the man lying on the desert ground, his cloak pulled round him, one arm under his head fast asleep. His face in sleep was stern, almost frowning, but his left hand lay relaxed on the dirt beside a small thistle that still bore its ragged cloak of gray fluff and its tiny defense of spikes and spines. The man and the small desert thistle, the thistle and the sleeping man, dot, dot, dot. And she doesn't use ellipses very much in the book like that from the narrator's point of view, so, but also that's that repetition the man and the small desert thistle, the thistle and the sleeping man. It's very rhetorical. She's, you know, she's not, obviously, you know, she's not a fool. She knows how to write. And she, oh, yeah. she deploys these rhetorical uh, tropes and schemes in such a really great way to such great effect. Um, yeah, it's really hard to not uh, see the, the, the poetry there. And again, I don't, I, I invite Jonathan Strahan to come onto the podcast and talk about this austerity that he sees in the prose. Right, um, right. It'd be interesting to hear why he thinks that. I mean, is it is it because like he was expecting something like overridden? I, I don't know. Because like when most people, like I said, most people, especially in genre, when they say something is poetic, they mean something more like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of uh, like Tanith Lee, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is great. I mean, it, it, her writing too, I think is poetic, but it also is the opposite end. You know, it, it's it's very florid and, it, and it's like you know words piled upon words piled upon words which is interesting in its own way but I, I i think like if you're coming at it and thinking that's what the poetry is going to be like then maybe you could see it as being austere i don't know i i don't think so though <laughs> well i think there's two things there's two reasons for this and i was trying to get at this in the first two episodes with simon and james about a wizard of earth sea but it's something like i had asked james gifford when did fantasy books start to get larger because they're just they're bigger now we tend to think of fantasy books as being quite um they're like tomes you know you expect them you and you expect them to be in multiple multiples of at least three and he was saying you know in the late 70s that el rey had had put a minimum like a floor of a hundred thousand words and so people were writing to me okay that i i see that that makes sense that was well before these books came out or well after i should say that these books came out at least these first two books and uh yeah and so there's that but then there's also the you know person in 2022 reading a book like this and comparing it to what you've been reading in the last even 20 30 years mm-hmm. and what you're going to have is you could pick up any uh run of the mill 
500-page fantasy novel published by Del Rey or Tor in the early 90s and have something that is, you know, probably written at a level that is, I don't know how to say this. Everything is, to some degree, Tolkienized. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. And Over- I think, yeah, we we could say overwritten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or can you hear me for- okay? Or my yeah, no, I can I can hear you. I think I just interrupted you. It's just that okay. it's what's so fascinating okay. is that I, I I don't think her books are in any way. They might be a response, but they don't follow his style in any way. And like when I, I remember reading Tolkien when I was in high school and I was caught up in the story, but something about the language seemed to go too far to me, like the descriptive language about the rolling hills all the time. I was sort of, I didn't need that, you know, part of it like really wore yeah. me down. Um, whereas she leaves that out. And maybe that's the parallax that goes on for readers now who, who's, who pick up these 180 page books mm-hmm. and they, they just, because of their, as you said, denseness and compactness just seem to not have some sort of a descriptive quality to it that you would have expected out of a, any novel that would be published in the last year or so. And I, I just as an example, what, what I think people think of now as being really well-written fantasy is like Patrick Rothfuss. I've yeah. seen this a lot. They, they go on about how beautiful his prose is. And Pat Rothfuss is a good writer. Like just hmm. definitely, I don't think anything about it is, is bad per se. But no offense, Mr. Rothfuss, but I don't think it meets any anything that goes on in, in Earthsea by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. No, he probably yeah. would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. I think I think he's still kind of flabbergasted that Le Guin said that he was a good writer. <laughs> well, yeah, I think anybody would be. I would. Jeez. Yeah. That's actually. Yeah. I, yeah. When I heard that's actually why I read his book at one point. So was because of the quote from Le Guin saying that he was a good writer. I'm like, oh, I should check this out then. I'm not going to see either way I think of it, though, because that's not that's not what this podcast is about. So um, but I will say it's interesting that in the 70s. In the six, like the 60s and 70s, the fantasy writers that were inspired by Tolkien. Took different things from him than like the writers in the 80s and 90s and today, I think, because mm-hmm. you have Peter S. Beagle, who was also really highly influenced by Tolkien mm-hmm. and like the books he wrote after reading Lord of the Rings, like Giant Bones and things like that aren't like wordy, descriptive. They, they took more like the world building ideas and things like that. Right. We should say Peter S. Beagle is the author of The Last Unicorn and uh, A Fine and... Private Place. Yes, yes. And um, and is very well-beloved fantasy writer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because he wrote, um, he actually wrote the screenplay to the rank, uh, not the rank and, was it the rank and best one? No, it was... Um, Oh, the 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 one version of Lord of the Rings where it was all like overdrawn over top of like people acting. Um, the rotoscoped one. Who is that? Don't remember. Oh yeah, he he did the the Fritz the Cat movie too. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, like Peter Beagle wrote the screenplay for that version of Lord of the Rings, and okay. like was hugely enamored with Tolkien at the time. So like the stuff that he wrote post, I think it was Last Unicorn was. He wrote before Lord of the Rings and then things after that were like influenced by it. And you can see like, it's interesting because Le Guin was also very influenced by, by Lord of the Rings. Like she wrote, um, I don't know if you've read any of her essays on it, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she also took, but she also liked his language. That was the interesting thing. She compared him to Dunsany. Mm. Interesting. I'm not sure I'd agree with that, uh, but it was interesting. I thought. Yeah, I am. Again, I don't want to make people think that I don't like the pro style of Tolkien. I'm fine with it. It was just that. Oh no, no, I agree with. Yeah, it's overwritten. I think. There's just there's just <laughs> moments where it was like it was too. It was and it was in the two towers. It's like you're deep in it. You know, you've read The Hobbit. You've read The Lord of the Rings. You're in the middle of two towers. Things start feeling like you know. Um, I don't need. I, if I read another description of a hill, I'm going to lose my mind. I could never finish two towers, to be honest. Everyone I tell, everyone I know tells me, like, oh, you got to get through it because the third book is so amazing. And I'm like, I'm fine. I've seen the movies. It's it's okay. I I love The Hobbit. I think it's a great book. And then Lord of the Rings just isn't for me. And that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's interesting that readers like later on follow more in the people that imitated Tolkien in the ni- 80s and 90s, you know, that uh, they were more for like the long descriptions of everything and going into great detail about stuff and 
um, and not like the same thing that Le Guin and Peter Spiegel took, which is more like the essence of world building and mystery and things. It's just interesting that the, there's like two different schools of how they like imitated him. And I'm wondering how, the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I well, want you to finish that thought. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, you know, where, like, why it became different. Maybe it's because um, of Terry Brooks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the Shannara books, they became popular, and then everyone wanted to imitate that version of the imitation of Tolkien or something. I don't know. No, I, I think there's something to that. I think that's very interesting that the people who came along who see influence is such a crazy thing because, you know, who I, when you said the thing, speaking of like Lovecraft, right, the sort of weird horror aspect of Tombs of Atuan, did you read that somewhere or is that just something as the horror writer and you noticed as you're reading the book? Yeah, that was just me noticing it. And and like I noticed other things too, but this is me looking back from now because like, I was like, ooh, because like some of the rituals reminded me of folk horror. But I mean, that's obviously she wasn't thinking of that because that didn't even, that wasn't even a term back then. I, I don't even think, um, you know, there was any folk horror movies out just yet when uh earthsea was or earthsea was even thought of so uh but that's that made me think of like when i first read it because that was starting to first come out you know and i i'd seen like you know uh quite a few of the movies like you know the witch finder and all that stuff so i, yeah, thought, I was gonna say oh, i don't know when the wicker man came out but yeah uh, the wicker man, yeah the copyright on tombs of atuan is 1970 so could be it's around that seems yeah. some weird stuff kind of going on around there like uh <laughs> yeah. when when did the 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 devils come out um I'm trying to think of when that the highly censored movie i think all kind of all, yeah there's a there was some weird stuff going on in the uh in the early 70s i only say that because my my dad was so obsessed with led zeppelin and we had the albums around and i became obsessed with led zeppelin and knowing all the stuff that was going on in the early 70s around like the symbolism and alistair crowley and you know um all this other kind of oh yeah yeah stuff but yeah, um, didn't, um... Jimmy Page owned like Crowley's mansion or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. books and like original manuscript, all kinds of other uh, big stuff like that. I remember that being a big, a bit, very big deal when I was uh, growing up. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I want to uh, talk about the some of the relationships between the characters in the story uh, prior mm-hmm. to Ged showing up. Literally halfway through, I, I was just sort of marking it. The my copy is 180 pages. And I think Ged comes in on page 90. Yeah. Um, and it's literally halfway through. And prior to that, there are these, these characters like we talked about where uh, Tenor or Tenar or Arha, there's so many different ways yeah, I don't to know say the names, <laughs> uh, is on her own left to figure out this massive superstructure of the undertomb, the painted room, the treasure room. There are pits. It, it reminded me very much of like, um, I'm saying this and I don't mean to be like Kurt, but like the, the Legend of Zelda, there were these like dungeon moments where it was like it would be in the dark and they have just to like navigate these things uh, by herself. And I am interested about the relationship between. Um, her as this priestess and these these people around her who are both supporting her and taking care of her but also fear her i mean did you get the sense that the other characters in the book feared her for her role yes i think so because she could like she was the only one protected and she could turn like you know what i mean she left people to die and get starved down there and things like that i mean i could see why they feared her um because like i don't know if she controlled the entities of the tomb or what but it seemed like there was some sort of a relationship between them you know what i mean because like it was always like up to her like like how people would die right and that was like one scene that i think was really poignant to me like was when she was given that like the decision and she could yeah she gets very upset too like that she chooses like she doesn't want to choose this but she chooses starvation you know as the the least painful way for them to go as a sacrifice right yeah um, which is what she could do to Ged when she finally finds him, but mm-hmm. just cannot yeah. bring herself to do it and eventually give some water and food and things like that. Yeah. And I think it's because he shows her kindness and she hadn't yet. Like if he would have been trying to manipulate her or control her, I think that might've ended differently. 
Mm-hmm. But I think he was very smart in that he just he showed her kindness and was like realizing that, you know, I don't know if it was like literally he was realizing that he had to help her find herself or if he thought maybe that would be the reason like why she would help him find the ring or whatever. I, I don't know. But I think like him helping her discover herself and her true name is like what saved him. Like she probably would have left him for dead otherwise. Yeah, I want to I want to come back to this. Um, yeah, I want to come back to the whole idea of why. I mean, well, I guess we'll talk about it right now because I, if I don't, I'm going to forget. But why, why try to take her out? Does he, he, why doesn't he just want to leave her? Is it because he thinks she's trapped? Is it because he doesn't recognize the rituals that are going on in, in this Kargish island? Because we don't, and this is one of the mystery, mysterious things I think you brought up, Paul, was like, we don't really get a full history of this ritual or religion or mythos that goes on on this one island, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's also like, like I was that ambiguity I was talking about before. And I think the Gwen uses that really well, both in this book and yeah. in the other Earthsea books. Her world building is very much hints and, you know, gestures, but she never actually goes deep into, um, it'd be like reading Lord of the Rings without the appendixes ever existing or Silmarillion. <laughs> But actually, on one hand, I think they would have been better without those things. Because, you know, I like, I like it when those aren't explained, you know? And I, I think that works really well there. I think also, too, like, I think he needs her. He needs her to survive mm-hmm. down there. You know, he can't find the ring of Aerith Ackby. Ak- <laughs> no, I'm pronouncing that way wrong. Um, Sounds good to me. Right, without her help. And I think actually to the point of when he's in there, he can't escape without her help either. Like he's completely at her. He's in over his head. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think was very smart of Le Guin too. Because if it would have just been another book with him, like being like the main character, I think, I think we would, it wouldn't have been quite as impactful because when we actually do come to him, which I was surprised the first time I read it, I was actually, oh, I guess he is going to be in this book after all. Um, knowing how powerful he is and then seeing all the stuff she does up until that point makes it, I think that's why we actually feel the danger that he feels because we know how powerful he is and the fact that he's scared and what she's done so far, like, you know, the sacrifices and things and what she's gone through. I think like that ratchets up the tension quite a bit. And there's also the aspect, I like that it's swapped from, from, from Ged's point from, I mean, following a young man Ged to now following a young woman mm-hmm. it's not like i had mentioned zelda before but the problem with all the zelda games and books and things which my my oldest son reads and loves all that stuff is that it's always about a woman being frozen right and or being held hostage or captive and it's always about uh link having to go save her it's always the same thing whereas that is totally turned on its head here yeah, where she's the one who has to do the saving he's super powerful mm-hmm. but he can't do anything for himself and he needs her and i i wonder if that's also what you were saying is that part of the reason why she's so open to this is because he he actually needs her yeah. and whereas all the other relationships are going back to what we we're talking about earlier all the other relationships that she had prior to that that power direction is based off fear and subservience rather yeah. than um uh, just like mutual aid, right? Yeah. Because th- from one end, you know, Ged could be yelling obscenities through the little peephole at her and saying, hey, let me out of here. What are you doing? Et cetera, et cetera. But he he doesn't. Actually, I don't think there's any part where he begs. He's just sort of oh. like, he acknowledges that he's a fool, <laughs> that he didn't know, understand what he was getting into and leaves it up to her. And she decides that she wants to help him. So I thought that was actually quite, it's strong from that point of view. And I think maybe that's what throws people off coming in from a wizard of Earthsea if they're thrown off at all. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think that's it exactly. That's why they're thrown. And I think a lazier writer would have gone a different route and gone. How so? I like, well, I mean, like, name. like, because the obvious thing there would be for him to yell at her and try and, you know what I mean? The obvious thing would be he, him to use his powers and to do this, like, like, you know, if I was writing it, because I'd probably be a very lazy writer in this instance, that's what that's the way I would go, because that's that's how movies go and how TV goes and how 
like all these other books and video games and everything, you know, like the powerful person comes in and like, you know, that's what they do. And like, there'd be like this great showdown between him and her and, you know, um, and she doesn't do that. And I think that's that uh, I really respect that because like, she didn't go the easy way out. She went like, as from a writer's perspective, she took the time to build this out and and actually go in an interesting route instead of going the easy way of conflict. Like she could have made it just so much like more about like conflict and story and have the story go like in the specific route. And she didn't do that. She 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 took the time and and made it more of a meditation on like, you know, not just friendship, but like more like a meeting of two minds and like, you know, him trying to like uh not just have him have her help him, but she was also writing about him helping her. And I, I keep going back to that um, in my mind because I know Le Guin is very big into Jungian psychology mm-hmm. as, as art. And I think, because at the end of this book, there's like a symbolic joining of the two genders, you know, mm. um, when, they, when they hold the ring of Arathakbe and like the both of them push it together. And it's like, yeah. And I think... Like with Jungian psychology, like having both the male and the female part of one's personality is like is healthy. Like you have to be able to embrace both. You can't right. just be I'm a man and I'm masculine all the time. You have to embrace both. And I think that's what Le Guin is going on here. Like she's not just telling a great story, but she's also talking like about psychology at the same time. You know, because she mentioned that too. Like with um, oh, a Wizard of Earthsea. Like that's about like struggling with the Jungian shadow. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think like she's not just like giving a good story here and giving a good buildings Roman, but she's also like guiding a way of like psychological health, you know, for for like the reader as well as like herself. Yeah, that then that would be then in a weird way, Tombs of Atuan is told from the point of view of the shadow, then because Arha is yeah, in the darkness, in the shadow, in the blackness. It can, cannot is not allowed to turn the light on. And but light comes in from the outside. She finds Ged, who has this very you know, aware light, this sort of you know magical light at the end of his staff. It's all he can really do, and he's there to say, "You don't have to be here all the time. You can come out into the world and be who you want to be out there." And what's funny is that, well, not funny, but what's yeah, what seems so powerful is that once she leaves, the whole tomb complex implodes. Because, right. although that doesn't mean that it's over, obviously, because you read on, people, to, <laughs> to, to book four, yes. you learn a lot more about, about tenor, um, is, is that, you, you know, you can't be all in shadow and you can't be all in light. If the first book was about trying to come to terms with the shadow that's out, that's inside of you, that's out in the world, then it's about, then the second one to some degree, and I'm spitballing this, is uh, from her point of view someone trying to come in to get you in the shadow um right right or about or about the shadow embracing the light or the, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. or flip flip the agency yeah. right it's both both it's both and it's never either or right yeah and i yeah. i like your reading of that that's interesting and i think I, I i do come back to that the part at the end where when she she comes to that realization she's just like weeping in pain which i think is a really strong symbol of what it means to as you said at the beginning, um, come into your own power because there's, there's a real, um, I don't know. There's like a grief and sadness in that, that I don't think a lot of adults talk about enough that, you know, leaving the leaving childhood and, or, you know, you even, you could even be an adult, have been in adulthood for a while and not realized it. And then once you do suddenly, you know, the cloak, the mantle is taken away and, and, and what you thought was your comfort is now gone. And you've always been standing um, in this sort of yeah. weep, weeping pain for a long time. It does sound very Lovecraftian how they say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, well, that's, it's funny you say that because my daughter is 18 now. Um, and like, I've noticed like in the last few years, she's become very nostalgic for her childhood, which, you know, for us, that's like, oh, that was like, what, a few years ago for you. But I remember going through that when I was her age too. And it's that that pain of like, you know, realizing like, yes, you're becoming an adult, you're getting more responsibilities and stuff, but there's like a sadness to that because you're leaving something behind. Yeah. 
That's real. No, I, I totally identify with that. I think, I, I think I went through something like that even earlier, probably around even 16, you yeah. know, and there's, because those leaps at that age, you know, like it, the difference between say, you know, eight and even 12 is four years, but those four years are so huge, you know, that yeah. it just really is transformative. So it makes sense, you know, and it's all of it symbolized so heavily, obviously in this book, yeah, but, um, and beautifully. But again, the, the part where Ged does not comfort her. And I don't think it's because he's mean. Right. There's I think that's what she needs. I mean, I think if he comforted her, that would that wouldn't work. Still coddling. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean in the sense no. of like it's something that she has to do on her own. Yeah. Yeah. That she needed. I think I think really maybe if you would have hugged <laughs> if you would have hugged her or something and said they're there, she would have stabbed him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that would that that would have been like going back to like treating her like she was being treated in the tombs. Like I mean, I mean, they treated her with fear, but they also like coddled her at the same time. I think part of that was from the fear. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know that like even though like they were afraid of her, but they still treated her like a child. A terrifying, I, child, but yeah, a terrifying child, but still a child all the same. Yeah. I was thinking when I finished the book, I was like, why is it called the Tombs of Atuan? Why isn't it not called the Ring of Aerith Acby? And I thought, because again, the MacGuffin, the ring, I mean, there's meaning in it, but like, yeah, it's not what the ultimate goal is. No. Um, no. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, because um, yeah, it is just a MacGuffin, which, you know, I used to think the word MacGuffin was insulting. Um, but- <laughs> But then, like I read, what Hitchcock was talking about is like the MacGuffin is never supposed to be important. It's not the point of the story. It's yeah. just the thing that gets your characters to do the interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the point of the story is the characters. And I'm like, you know, that's mm-hmm. that's actually. And I think most people like when they write MacGuffins in a story, they don't realize that, and they act like the MacGuffin is the important part, and they lose track that it's no, it's it's just something to get the characters going. Did, and, that you would write your. That's why I fear that stuff. Because I, I think you write yourself into a corner when you do that. Yeah. Because, and I think Le Guin realized that. And she cares more about characters than she cares about uh, what I think Neil Gaiman calls plot coupons or, you know, MacGuffins or anything. Like, uh, if a book is all about the one true important thing, you know, then, yeah. that, then you as a writer actually have to have something worthwhile to, to tell the reader about the thing that you're having your characters chase after right and i don't know about you i am not that smart so i can't make you know anything compelling enough for that so to me that's why it's like yeah i don't really i don't really care what the ring of aerith acby can do or does or whatever i mean it's interesting that i like your your articulation of what it what it symbolizes and and of course what ged says it will potentially bring peace to earthsea but it it is about as people are going to to get it, it's about what goes on between these characters. I mean, if people are reading The Lord of the Rings really just to like get to the part where the ring falls in Mount Doom, then you can skip all that. You can just go watch the end of the nine hours of the movie. The whole point is, I mean, why do you think Peter Jackson had how many, how like 20 minutes of saying goodbye between all these characters? It's because it was about the journey the whole time, obviously, right? Yeah, and it's I think that's true too. And it, that's interesting, like going back to Lord of the Rings for a minute, because that that was too also about characters. And the interesting characters weren't the usual characters that we find in like medieval fantasy novels, uh even to this day. Like the characters that were interesting were Frodo and Sam, like the normal minuscule people that, you know, affect great things, but they're not kings, they're not warriors, they're not like, you know, gods among men. And I and I found that was interesting um from that aspect um and yeah Le Guin uh, also does that like i mean not not specifically that part because ged is like kind of like the superhero practically speaking who's brought low a lot um yeah and also like you know so is ahar um or or tehenu i whichever name i obviously tehenu is her her true name was that her true name or was that her given name that um ged gives her then i'm trying to think he doesn't give her a name in this book. Arha right. is the priestess name, and the name right. that she has from her village is Tenor. 
Right. I, I think so he doesn't name her, but I think I think maybe it is in um uh Tanu that he names her. Yeah. Right? Or she finds a name. I think she finds the name herself. Mm-hmm. Right. I just it is one of those things I was just trying to remember. I was like, wait a minute, was this her? Yeah, okay. Um, because I remember that was one of the big problems with the sci-fi movies. They kept calling um Sparrowhawk Ged and Ged like they kept getting it backwards, like Sparrowhawk was his like magic name. And I'm like, no, it's Ged. Like Sparrowhawk is what everyone called him because you know that was the secret name that would like give him power mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't getting those reversed. <laughs> don't want to get yelled at by by an Earthsea fan. Yeah, I don't I have yet to find the Earthsea uh hardcore group. The, the clan that will come out and crucify you for making mistakes. They all seem to be pretty forgiving people. Um, what do we, what um, else would you like to uh, talk about, about this book that we haven't mentioned yet in the last yeah. section here? Um, well, you brought up the painted room earlier and I love the description of the painted room. <laughs> just, yeah, just, that's just one of my favorite descriptions. Um, I don't have it marked in my book or else I'd read it now. I don't want to spend time flipping through to find it. Um, but also what's interesting, because you brought up the dungeon before, and you mentioned Legend of Zelda. And what I think is interesting is looking at the map at the front of the book, and all the maps in the Earthsea books, actually. It's pre-Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And pre-video games, and pre-all of that. And it's interesting to see these maps, and to see them, and they look so different from maps we get in, in, in fantasy books today. They're more primitive and they're more like meandering and interesting to look at because they're not they're not something you're meant to look at and go, ooh, I want to play that area. You know, I want to I want to travel through there. You know, it's like especially Tombs of Atuan, it's they look confined and small and just like all these tunnels riddling about and stuff. And it's see, that's why probably I was so confused. I'm showing Paul my copy right now on the yeah. screen. I don't have a map in here. You don't have the map. No, oh, there is this, a there is a map. This yeah. this version, which was published by uh, uh, an imprint of Simon and Schuster uh, in the '90s, left out any maps, which is very strange to me. Because how would anybody reading this know where the Abavner Straits are, or Havner, or Her at Her, or Crago at, or any of that stuff? Right? If there are maps of the of the Undertombs, that would make so much more. Oh, hold on. I'm going to send you. There's oh, my one. goodness. Yeah, my life is about yeah. to change, listener. Do you hear me? My <laughs> life is about to change. But there's also one they have of the Cargid Lands, too. Um, that was in the beginning because I've got. Um, yeah, I'll send that one. Because um, I, I had a copy of the book that you have. And yeah, it doesn't have a map in it. But I last year I got the Illustrated Earthsea that has this map. And I guess it was in the old versions, too. It was just that version from the 90s, which is the one I read like when I was in my 20s. Um, that didn't have a map in it. So I didn't see this map then. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. Re- Listener, I am looking at the map that Paul just sent me, the Labyrinth of the Tombs of Atuan. And it has, it's beautiful. Yeah. And it has all the rooms, Room of Chains, Room of Bones, room of bones the Painted yeah. Room, Great Treasure, the Pit. This all makes so much sense now. Yeah. Oh, if I had this, this would have been... This would have made more sense. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I probably would have. Yeah. I, I have. I have it now, though. That's the good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I yeah. The first the book that I originally read didn't have it in there, so I didn't see this until I got the Illustrated Earthsea. But I guess this is an older map, though. This isn't one mm. that Charles Best made for it. So this is this is an older map from one of the, the earlier printings. Um, probably one of the printings where they had a Caucasian on the cover for Ged. <laughs> ah, yes. What she hated. But it might not have been actually. I look at this, and that might have been one of the other ones but anyway yeah so it's it's the room of chains i forgot about the room of chains um some of these aren't even actually mentioned in the book which makes it even cooler the red rock door the iron door i mean just it just sets the imagination on fire what's behind these things right the well the red rock door is the one where he they escaped through that one yeah that's right they they tried to escape through the trap door but it was something had blocked it and so they have to get out through the other way yeah that's right yeah yeah Yeah, so i read this i read the i reread this last week and i i should have reread it yesterday (laughs) no i've been i've been reading it slowly over the last week and i just finished it this morning um because i I, if i I finished it a week ago i would i would totally forget but um yeah yeah, no i'm I, i this is why i have these conversations or why i wanted to is because i you know 
it's it's it wasn't my favorite Earthsea book, but I knew there was something inside of it that needed to be, um, excuse the pun, unearthed, <laughs> and and I thought, well, I'll talk to Paul because Paul's on fire for it, and and here we are, and now I I, I have a greater appreciation for this for this book, the second uh, Earthsea novel. Um, we are about at an hour. So we're probably going to wrap it up. Is there anything you'd like to share or tell us about anything that you got going on, anything you're working on or. Oh, uh, no, I'm working on, I'm writing a, a novella right now. That's kind of interesting. It's a bit like, um, I, I always, I never think of my work as horror, but everyone else seems to see it as such. So I guess it is, but I'm, I'm thinking of it as more dark fantasy, but you know, the, when I reread it, they're like, Oh yeah, it's horror um contemporary dark fantasy but yeah it's horror um novella that i'm working on now that i'm i'm liking a lot um also about a labyrinth perfect uh, yeah i seem to be obsessed with it and i'm working on an rpg uh video game too in the future but other than that not much um also funny you should say that you didn't like earth uh tombs of Atuan that much i didn't like uh for the shore that much for the shore but i reread that last summer and i got a brand new appreciation for it all of a sudden <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'm not talking about that this season because it's not on the docket. No one like it's not come up, but I think because I've already read these first two, I'm going to have to go ahead and just continue and read that one. Yeah. So um, yeah, that one's not very high on my estimation either, but I, I probably like you will probably have to come around to uh to a second reading of that um, for a reevaluation. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Paul, for discussing the tombs of Atron with me. Uh, it's been really great, and I, I'm going to be looking at this book much differently now, yeah, well, literally good. and figuratively, since you gave me the map. <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful map, isn't it? Yeah, no, I'm going to be staring at it for the next like 15 minutes. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. 